Last week we talked about, um, out of Matthew 6, about seeking the kingdom of God and all of his righteousness. Jesus said, you know, there's a lot of things you could be worried about. And in his day, they were concerned about the most basic of things, what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear, where you're going to live. He said, that's what the Gentiles worry about. They spend their whole life looking for these things and seeking these things. They spend their whole life trying to get what they need. But he says, if you would just trust God, if you would trust that you have a father who already knows what you need, and it's his good pleasure to give you these things, then you could focus on what really matters. If you would seek first the kingdom of God and all of his righteousness, then all those other things will be added unto you. Now, Translate that to 2015, and uh, we might have a bit more of a, in our minds, sophisticated way of life. There are more things for us to think about, but it still comes down to those basic things. What do we need, and do we trust that there is a Father in heaven who knows what we need before we even know it ourselves? And do we trust, and do we believe that if Jesus commands us not to worry about those things, not to occupy yourselves with those things. Don't you think it would be wrong for us to go through our life worrying about things that he said, let me take care of those things? What are you meant to seek? As I said last week, seeking is not just like what you're thinking about. It starts with what you're thinking about, but seeking, you can look at somebody's life and tell what they're seeking. You can look at your schedule and tell what you're seeking. You can look at your desires, the things you care about, and you'll know what you're seeking. He says, if you'll seek first my kingdom and my righteousness, all those other things will be added unto you. How long, how many hours, how many days, how many years do we waste seeking things that have already been sought for us? How many nights do we spend unable to sleep because we're trying to get what we weren't even supposed to be thinking about? He said the birds, they don't sow, they don't reap, they don't even look after Somehow the Father cares for them and looks after them, makes sure they have something. He says those flowers, look at them. They neither toil nor spin, yet God has clothed them more beautifully than Solomon in all his splendor. Then he says, and Jesus says this, and this might, this might mess, up, mess you up a little bit. I, I mean, I believe in caring for the environment. I, I believe in being good stewards of what God gave us. But I also believe there's no creature on the earth like mankind. We are his prime possession. We are different than all the other ones. Because he says this, don't you know that your father cares for you much more than all of those things? Of all the creatures that God ever created, you are the only one he breathed his spirit into and gave a living soul. All these other creatures, they got brains. They got emotions, some of them. They've got not only instinct, but you can tell. You look at your dog and you say, my dog genuinely likes me. All right. But that dog doesn't have the spirit of God living within him. He's got life, and God breathed that life into that dog. But there's something different about you. And that breath and every breath after it is worth something. It's meant to be spent on something a little bit more significant than, all the, than the rest of the world thinks we're spending our life for. If you look around Lloydminster today, 
People are scrambling all the time. It doesn't matter whether the economy is good or bad. They're scrambling. There are people that will take jobs and don't see their family for weeks and weeks and weeks, but as long as they're making a good check, everybody's happy. But in the end, that's not what we were created to live for. That's not the main part of life. The main part of life is not to get a nice boat and a cabin by the lake. The main part of life is not just really, to be honest with you, the main part of life is not you taking care of yourself. The main part of life is watching him take care of you and you turning your focus somewhere else. And he says, here's where your focus is meant to be. Seek my kingdom and my righteousness, and I will take care of all these other things. He says, the Gentiles spend their lives looking for these things. And then he says, but your father knows that you need them. That's the most amazing thing. He doesn't say, that stuff's not important. Be homeless and naked like me. He says, I know you need it. Your father knows you need it. Let him take care of that. So last week we talked about seeking his righteousness and what that looked like. And I want to go back to the, the point of seeking his kingdom. Uh, many ways that, that starts with our heart, doesn't it? Jesus ex- explained the kingdom of God through many parables. One parable, he said it was like a mustard seed that started real small, then took over a whole garden, and then took over a whole area. In another parable, he says it's like, it's like leaven and a little bit of dough. It, it, it starts just a little bit, in, and it, all of a sudden it spreads throughout the whole lump of dough. He, he explains it in so many ways, but what he's describing first and foremost is how the kingdom of God reacts to our heart and how our heart reacts to the kingdom. That God will plant little seeds in your heart. And maybe you're here today because at some point in your life, a seed of the kingdom, God just put a little seed in your heart and it began to grow and it began to grow. And probably the first little bit that it began to grow, you were annoyed by it or you were bothered by it. You ever been bothered by somebody, something somebody just said? Maybe before you got born again and somebody just said something to you in love, it was just an, it was something that maybe they didn't think much of, but they said something and it stuck with you. And in that moment where you're still deciding what you believe or you're rejecting what you believe now, there's this moment where you're frustrated and you're angry and you're, you're tense because like Saul of Tarsus you're kicking against the goads. You're kicking against the prodding of the Holy Spirit. Isn't it wonderful to look back now and see all those times that God put something inside you that began to grow and began to grow and began to take up more space in your life? If the kingdom of God has stopped taking up space in our life or has stopped growing, there's a problem. So then we're not only since supposed to seek the kingdom in our own hearts, but it expands. We want to see his kingdom expanded all throughout the city, all throughout the province, all throughout the nation, all throughout the world. With that in mind, let's turn to John chapter 4. Very familiar section of scripture to many of you. And it's something we certainly have talked about here in, in, in the word church. Jesus has to go down from Judea into Galilee. Now, here's the trick about that. The only way to get from Judea to Galilee is either to go past through the land of the Samaritans or go around the long way, which a lot of Jews did. If you read Josephus, he says a lot of these Jews, they would, it takes three days to go from Judea down to Galilee. That's through the Samaritan area. But some of them, just to avoid the Samaritans, they'd go the long way around. 
They'd still have to come in contact with Gentiles if they went the other way. But to them, Gentiles were at least better than Samaritans. See, they were so concerned about who they were touching, who they were, you know, like, don't, get, don't contaminate me. Don't, don't get your ick on me. I don't want anything to do with you. And the Samaritans were especially bad because at least the Gentiles were out-and-out pagans. At least they were outright heathens. But the Samaritans were like this weird cult version of Judaism. The reason was, back when the Assyrians conquered Israel, the Assyrians took people from other nations that they had conquered and planted them in Israel, planted them in some of these areas and put these people together. And so from that, the religion that, that you, the Jewish people with their, with their faith and these pagans with their faith, they mixed and they mingled. And what came out of it was a very strange version a very strange perversion of what God had originally intended. And these people stuck around. And so uh, not only did the Jews reject them, in, in the book of Ezra, you can read how they said, you know, we need, to, we need to stay away from the Samaritans. They've gotten off into the deep end of weirdness, and we're not going <laughs> to be spending any time with them. And so the Jews just avoided them like the plague. The Samaritans reacted you know, the same way. You know, when someone pushes you away, you push them away. And so the Samaritans had their own belief and they had their own rival mountain. And so they said, you guys worship at that mountain, but this is the true mountain. And by the time Jesus is coming through this area, he does something. He sends his disciples to find some kosher food in Samaria, which isn't easy. Get me some good kosher food. So these guys are going. Now, it doesn't say kosher in the Bible, but that's what he would have eaten. He, would, he wasn't ordering bacon or anything. So he's going, and, and he sends them off, find me some food in Samaria. That's their job. That's their task. It's not a super spiritual task, but it's an important one. Get the man some food. John chapter 4, verse 4, verse 3, sorry. He left Judea. And he went again into Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son's jo- son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. That's noon. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I'm a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now, there's a few strikes against this woman. There's so many reasons Jesus shouldn't be talking to her. You guys know most of them. Number one, she's a woman. And in that day and age, there was this this patriarchal society, there was this idea that men should not speak to women in public. There's, there's those scholars that write about that day and age and, and have, have found the history of the time, and they say that, that men in that time were taught by their rabbis not to even speak to their wives in public. Can you imagine that? You're not even allowed to talk to your wife out in public. Keep that stuff. Get a room, you two. Honey, do we need to pick up some cheese? Oh, not around the kids. Go home. Couldn't even speak to a woman in public. Strike one. Strike two, and this is a big strike. She's a Samaritan. Dirty, filthy Samaritan. Gross. Strike two, 
Can you imagine? What's a Samaritan look like in 2015? Picture a cult. You know, somebody that shows up at your door and says, oh, you're a Christian too? But then you start talking to them and go, we don't believe the same thing, do we? I just want to give you a magazine. Do you feel stressed? I'm feeling stressed right now. Well, here's a cookbook. Hmm. The Samaritans were another level of that. And Jesus wasn't supposed to hang out, not, not talk to even a Samaritan man, let alone a Samaritan woman. Strike three, we find out that she's a woman with a bad reputation. You could say even, even the rabbis of the time wouldn't, wouldn't discuss theological matters, first and foremost, not with a woman. Even in your own home. Eric could not go home and talk to Rhonda about the Bible. Isn't that odd? Do you know why? Because she might start getting educated. If she starts getting educated, she'll get ideas in her head. What kind of freedom, what kind of wackiness would ensue should she start thinking she knows something? Now, you can understand how radical it was that Jesus walked around with a group of women following him. We don't talk about that a lot. We know about the 12 disciples, but you know the scripture talks about these women that he set free from their bondage. They were delivered from demons. Some of them were funding his ministry. It was revolutionary in that day and age. So he does another revolutionary thing, talks to this lady. But the rabbis at the time, would, would, they discouraged you even talking about theological matters with a fisherman or a carpenter. You don't talk, of, you don't talk to this, about this stuff to a man of the land. They don't need to know this. They, they, they can learn at synagogue. We, we discuss this with the educated folk. So Jesus is breaking all sorts of taboos. He's breaking all sorts of boundaries. And he says, give me a drink. She says, how is it that you being a Jew ask me for a drink since I'm a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Verse 10, Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God, And who it is that says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. He's saying, I'm asking you for a drink, but if you knew who you were talking to, you would have asked me for a drink. And not a drink from the well, but that living water. Now, this is a bit confusing to her, because back then, living water, when they heard that, they we, we hear living water, and we think of like this Holy Spirit, we think of eternal life. But back then, living water meant like, Fresh water, water that was flowing like a stream or a spring, water that wasn't just sitting still. That was living water. So to her, she's kind of wondering about this. This is a little odd. But of course, we know that he's not talking about a, a physical river or a natural spring. He's talking about the life of God that's in him. He says, if you knew the gift of God, he refers to himself as the gift of God. If you knew the gift of God and you knew who it was you were talking to, you would have asked me for something. And he says this, she said to him, I'm sorry, sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? This must have just been the weirdest conversation for her. Can't you imagine? Can you imagine going up to somebody and saying, uh, you know, just going up, going across the street to McDonald's, saying, I'll have a Coke, please. And they go, okay, you, you want a Coke? And you said, if you knew who you were talking to, you'd ask me for a soda. What? 
I'll give you the soda that never runs dry. Okay, what are you talking about, man? Do you want a Coke or not? Like, I don't... Says to her, give me some water. Okay, I can... Why are you even talking to me? If you knew you were talking to you, you'd ask me for water. She goes, you've got nothing to draw with. Where are you going to get water from? He says in verse 12, or actually she says, you are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us this well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle. This is the original Jacob's well. And Jacob was at least somebody they had in common. Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Guys, I'll tell you, that that doesn't just start and end with the time you accepted Jesus as the Lord of your life. That well is for the rest of your life if you will tap into it. Jesus said, Therefore, with joy, he says, "Come here. if anybody's thirsty, let him draw from me. Let him draw from my well. So he says this to her. He says, anybody who drinks of me, I will give him, and it will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. That's the seed of the kingdom. Once you take one drink, it's going to spring something up in you. Then he says this. The woman says, sir, give me this water so I won't be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw and And many of you have studied this out. There's a reason she's the only one at the well in the middle of the day. It's noon, and and the women didn't draw the water at noon. First of all, it's hot. Second of all, you need it at the beginning of the day, don't you, to get everything done. The women would all come together. This was the big social gathering. All the women would gather at the well, and they'd laugh. They'd tell jokes. They'd probably talk about their husbands or whatever, and they'd draw well, a water from the well, and it'd be a fun experience. There's a reason she's by herself. We find out later it's because she's not the kind of woman that the other women want to hang out with. She's had five husbands, and the one that she's with right now isn't her husband. She's a woman, and in that society, in our society, that's unusual. In that society, that is pushing you to the very, very fringe of society. So here she is, by herself. Nobody wants to be around her. She's drawing water. She says, give me this water so I won't be thirsty, nor do I have to come all the way here by myself to draw water. I would love to not have to come to this well again. He said, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you've correctly said I have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you've said truly. She says, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. He says, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you don't know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Now, here's an interesting point. You notice how she tries to change the subject, and you would too. This guy just read your mail and told you the stuff you don't want strangers knowing about you. Which is, you've had five husbands, and you're not living with them. The guy you're living with right now, shacked up with him, he's not your husband either. 
So he tells her this. She is convinced he's a prophet. She says, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Let's talk about something else. You guys say that this mountain is the one to worship at. We say this mountain. Nice try. You ever noticed that in the ministering of the good news to somebody, sometimes in that moment, you see, because in, in order for the gospel to be good news, you have to know that you need it, don't you? I mean, somebody, if you gave somebody and said, I have the cure to your cancer, if they said, I didn't know I had cancer, I don't have cancer, then that's not good news to them. But if they knew that they had that, they needed a cure, all of a sudden it's good news. How many people do you talk to every day that are convinced they don't need a Savior? They're convinced they don't need Jesus. They don't need anything. And so that moment you begin to speak to them and the Holy Spirit begins to work on their hearts, one of the things he does so well is begin to reveal to them their need for him. What is our greatest need for Jesus? Our greatest need is that cleansing, is that life, because all of a sudden we realize we're dead. We've been walking around thinking we were alive. You know, the Apostle Paul said, we are the aroma of Christ to God. Isn't that wonderful? To God, we smell like Christ. That's beautiful. Then he says, to those that are perishing, we are the very stench of death. Well, that's not so good. I don't want to smell like dead people. He says, to those that are perishing, we smell like death. Why? That's not a bad thing. People are going through life. Listen, if you're going through life and you're dying and you don't know that you're dying, it's a good thing that somebody tells you, somebody reveals to you, you need life. There's a car about to drive off the cliff and you've been to the cliff and you know there's a cliff there and you know if they keep driving, the car will hurtle over the cliff and they'll go to their deaths. Do you watch the car go by and go, well, I don't want to step on their toes with my beliefs. Do you stop the car and go, wait, 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 get it, you know, roll down the window and they, they're angry at you because they got somewhere to go. Do you feel embarrassed for telling them that there's a, there's a cliff right there or do you feel like this is my duty as a human being to let them know? See, that's the way we are as believers. We now realize we were dead, but we're alive now. So Paul says, like, it's a good thing that when some people are around me, I smell like death to them. I don't think anybody in the room would say I want to smell like death. But what does that mean? They're reminded. Wait a second. They're reminded, wait a minute. I'm dying and I need life. And how many people have you talked to who think they're fine and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit begins to show them they're not as fine as they think they are and they want to change the subject. So what do they change it to? These minor little doctrinal issues. What does she change it to? Well, you Jews say that that mountain is a holy mountain. We Samaritans say it's this mountain. I've been in so many conversations with people, and God is doing something in their heart. And you can see their eyes misting up. You can see their lower lips start to tremble. And then you see that moment where they say, "Uh uh-uh, I'm I'm not going to let this happen. And they start to say, well, what about you? uh, What's your denomination? What's different than you and the Catholics? What about this or what about that? All of a sudden, they're trying to turn the spotlight off of their heart and onto something else. Jesus doesn't take the bait. He answers her question, but he turns it back to, 
There will be a day when those that worship me will worship in spirit and in truth. He doesn't get in a half hour. You see, the enemy would love to derail your every conversation. Can I just tell you, the people, the people that God sends you to, the people that God sends in your path, they don't know what they need. Just like you didn't know what you needed. I, you know, I, I, I've been on, I remember being on a panel at a national conference, and it was about the future of the church. And one of the guys on the panel was a great guy, but, you know, he kept talking about this is what visitors want, this is what I'm, what, what happens when the lost come to church, this is what they want, this is what they want. And I get that, I want to be friendly to people. I want them to not be freaked out when they come in the door. But at the same time, what lost person ever knew what they needed? If they knew what they needed, they wouldn't be lost. When you were unsaved, did you know what you needed? Were you a little freaked out when you came to church? A little bit? A little bit? So you don't, ask the, you don't ask the lost guy, hey, which way should we go? You say, hey, I know something. You need to know. Let's go this way. And so in the same way, you can't let the conversation be steered whatever way anybody steers it to. You have to be led by the Spirit, not led by people. So Jesus is not letting her take the easy way out and say, let's talk about mountains. Let's talk about who's right and who's wrong. He basically says, you're wrong, we're right, which is a harsh thing. He says, salvation is from the Jews. But then he says, but an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He was called the Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Then Jesus says this amazing thing. He says, I who speak to you am he. I am he. There's a phrase that he uses here, basically meaning I am. Which, of course, Yahweh of old would say, I am. Moses says, what God, who do I tell them? Who do I tell the Pharaoh sent me? And he says, just tell him I am. Jesus, several times through his ministry, would start with this phrase and say, I am the resurrection. I am the tr- way, the truth, the life. I am the vine. I am. And he, he, would, he would say something just shattering about himself. And here he says, she says, well, I know when the Messiah comes, he'll, he'll, he'll fix all this. And he says, the the guy you're speaking to, I am he. That's me. At this point, his disciples show up. Their timing is impeccable. And they were amazed that he'd been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek or why do you speak with her? Because they had had their chubby little hands slapped so many times, they knew better. Just keep your mouth shut. I bet everybody's itching too. The fact that, he, that John actually brings it out in his writing, you know, he's one of the guys here. He says, his disciples came. They were amazed, but they were smart enough. This time, no boys, we're not going to fall for this again. This time, we keep our mouth shut. Come on, I don't want to get rebuked in front of a woman. So they don't say anything, smart boy. So the woman left her water pot. That was the very reason she'd come half a mile out of the city was to get water. She leaves her water pot. And she went into the city and she said to the men, no women that are talking to her yet, she said to the men, come, see a man who told me all the things that I've done. 
this is not the Christ, is it? So she's already having some lingering doubts. It's amazing that God can even use somebody who's still got some doubts to be a witness. And here, she's got some doubts. If you read this in the original Greek, that doubt is even more pronounced. It's not just, she's not saying, hey, this might be the one. She's really starting to question it. But God still used that. Just that lingering bit of, could this be? And it, it, it stirred the curiosity of these men. And the Holy Spirit's working on them enough that they went out of the city and they were coming to him. Meanwhile, back at the ranch. Meanwhile, back at the well. You see two different pictures, right? You see, in this Samaritan city, there are all these people pumped up, and they're starting to come out, and and Jesus is about to have a revival meeting right by the well. This is going to be big. But meanwhile, back at the well, the disciples are trying to get Jesus to eat some food because that was their job. Get them some food. You guys, many of you have been, you know, just like me, if you've been in one area of ministry, you've been in many, and you've done little things, and you've served, and you've, you've helped out in different areas. And sometimes we get such tunnel vision. Our assigned task, like the thing somebody told us to do that one time, we want to do it as under the Lord. So we throw ourselves into it. But sometimes we get tunnel vision, and we think that that's all there is. My, my little job is all there is. You know, I remember when I, I first started playing uh, the bass guitar on stage as a teenager. Now, that was before I started playing the guitar. I wasn't confident enough to play guitar on the stage, so I started out on the bass. And when I started out on the bass, there's this moment where you think the church is going to change because of my bass. <laughs> Revival is going to hit this city because of my bass. And there'd be that moment in the middle of a worship service where you say, oh, the Holy Spirit likes this bass. I'm telling you, I feel it. Do you guys feel it? There's people kneeling at the altar. They're kneeling because of my bass. This is awesome. That's usually when you mess up and go, oh. All of a sudden you realize it's important what you're doing. But what you're doing isn't everything. So their task You can't let your task overwhelm the mission. There are tasks, and they're important, and they all play into the mission, but they're not the mission. Sometimes we get so busy doing the thing we've been busy doing that we forget that there's something bigger than this busy work. Here they are. A whole city's coming to Jesus, and here's their question. Jesus, have you eaten? And the reason they're so concerned about whether or not he's eaten It's because that was their task. Go get the man some food. Find some kosher food in this dirty, filthy Samaritan city. I bet they were so proud when they came back. Jesus, we found something. All of a sudden, he doesn't seem so interested. They have to wait until he's done talking to the woman because they don't want to come too close. The woman leaves, so now's their chance. Come on, boys. It's our big chance. We got him the food. Let's give him the food. He says, meanwhile, they're trying to give him food. And he says this, they said, Rabbi, eat. And he said to them, I have food to eat that you don't know about. Now, can you imagine how ticked off they'd be right now? Jesus sent 12 guys to get food. He sent all of them. He didn't send half his disciples. He sent the whole crew. 
To them, this is the most important thing on the planet, getting him food. Then they come back and he says, I got a secret stash of food that you don't know about. So at this point, you're starting to suspect. He's giving us busy work, isn't he? Just giving us something to do. He's got food. So they start looking at each other and they say, no one brought him anything to eat, did they? Did somebody sneak him a Snickers bar? Did somebody, where, who did this? And he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Now, let's stop there for a minute. We talked about this a few weeks ago, so don't mind me repeating. It's interesting that he says, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me and to accomplish his work. If we, like I said, we said this three weeks ago or four weeks ago, what is food to us? It's the thing that satisfies us. It's the thing that gives us energy, gives us life. It gives us pleasure. To Jesus, what fed him in life, what gave him pleasure, what gave him energy, what gave him life, what satisfied him more than physical food. Now, he still had to eat. He still had to drink. But what satisfied him, what, what thrilled him, what gave him life more than anything was to do the will of the one who sent him and to accomplish his work. How many times have you been praying and just getting into that place where you knew that you were getting somewhere in prayer and all of a sudden, like an alarm clock, your stomach rumbles. How many times have you been in the presence of God worshiping and all of a sudden you feel sleepy? Sometimes that's a coincidence and sometimes it's not. Do you think it's a coincidence that in the garden when Jesus tells these disciples to pray, he's about to be arrested, he is literally fighting the battle of his life and he says, pray with me and they can't pray for an hour because sleep overcomes them? That's not just physical sleep. There's a spirit. There's an oppression in the air. And they fell asleep. You know, the scripture says that there are those whose God is their belly, whose end is destruction, who sets their mind on earthly things. You got to eat at some point. But we have to get to the place where the spirit is more important than the flesh. If you can't get to that point, you'll never get to that deep place in God. And you, you really will, will, it'll be easy to distract you. This is why, guys, this is why it's so good that we, we fast every now and then. It's good to say no to your flesh and yes to the Spirit. You know what you're doing when you're fasting? You're saying there is nothing more important than what God is doing through me right, through the Spirit right now. And I am going to put such a priority on the things of the Spirit that the, the, the belly's not going to get any food right now. And the belly's going to learn who's boss. Your belly has to be reminded who's boss. Some of you guys more than others. Our bellies need to be reminded you're not God. How many people say, I didn't, where were you today? I thought we had such a, an awesome time in, in the presence of God today. I didn't feel like going. Were you sick? Do we need to pray for you? I'm not sick. I just didn't feel like going. I was tired. Wow, okay. Then the next week, it happens again. You're starting to notice a pattern. I've talked to some people, and they said, you know, I'm, I'm more tired. Remember when I was tired? I couldn't come to church. Now I'm even more tired this week. And I said, guys, I don't think that's a coincidence. You know why? It worked last time. A little fatigue kept you home. 
So why wouldn't the enemy use that again? A little rumbling of the tummy here made you stop praying. So why wouldn't the enemy use that again? Jesus has gotten to the place where something is way more important than his food, and that's to do the will of God. There's a moment to eat. There's a time to eat. There's a time to drink. There's a time to sleep. But there's something so much more important than that. What's happening is a city is about to be turned to the Messiah. Here he says this. Do you not say, there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look to the fields. They are white for harvest. What's Jesus saying to them? Stop waiting. What are you waiting for? Lift up your eyes and look to the fields. They're white for harvest. Already he who reaps or he who harvests is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you've not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Now, I don't know who in the world Jesus is talking to about at this point. Like, I don't know who's been going and preaching something that, that, it, that is planting seeds of the kingdom that he's able to pick up on. But all I know is I can see it today. Do you realize how many people in this very city that we're standing in right now have preached the gospel for years and for decades? Some who've gone on to be with the Lord, and yet those seeds remain in our city. And you might think the only thing I'll ever harvest is what I've sown. But Jesus says, sometimes you've got to step into somebody else's labor. Right. See, they're, they're, they're thinking, boy, it'll take some time to cultivate these fields. But in one conversation, a whole city comes to Jesus. Yeah. Do you know, sometimes you just step into something that God's been working on for a while. Yeah. And your job's not to figure it out. Your job's not to make it happen. Your job's just to bring it in. Well, that's exciting to me. That's super exciting to me. That there might be moments in our very city where a whole community, a whole neighborhood, a whole workplace, a whole culture opens up because God's been working on them for a while. But the trick is, is to get us so focused on our busy work and our busybodiness, and our busy, 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 everything else. Even the busyness of ministry. Because those disciples, they were just doing what Jesus sent them to do. Jesus sent them to go get food, so they thought that was the most important thing in the world. But they missed the point. Food's important. This is more important. Some people get distracted by their jobs. Some people get distracted by the things they enjoy. Some people get distracted by sports. Some people get distracted by their kids' schedules. You know, all those things are good in, in the right place, but when they distract you from what God's doing, they're a problem. But it might not be too much of a revelation for you to know that some people get distracted by the busyness of ministry or the things that they're supposed to be doing. You get so tunnel visioned on what, here's my task, here's my job, that you forget that every believer is called to the harvest. That you forget that every one of us has a place in the harvest. They're so focused. He sent us to get food. That's our job. That's our task. So now food is the most important thing in the world. 
But to Jesus, the most important thing in the world are those people that are coming. And he gets excited. Now, here's what I want to stand out to you, and here's what stands out to me. He says, lift up your eyes and look to the fields. There was a moment a few years ago I was praying, and we were just battling through some stuff. It was, in the, it was before I pastored this church, and I was pastoring the church in Loon Lake. And, and it was just like, you know, we're slugging through, and we're getting stuff done. And it just seemed like it was just, you know, going through the motions, get things done, just come on, keep it moving, keep it running, keep it going. And I was in prayer, and all of a sudden, what I was looking at wasn't what I was looking at anymore. And I felt, it was almost like a hand grabbed my chin and pulled me up like this and said, lift up your eyes and look to the fields. And all of a sudden, as I was so worried about the church stuff and the busyness and the things that we were keeping going, that all of a sudden, what I saw were all these areas of ministry that God was opening up and all these people that the gospel needed to be preached to that I wasn't even thinking about anymore. He said, lift up your eyes and look to the fields. They're ready for harvest. Our modern church has bred a generation of people who are prone at times to get so focused on our tasks that we forget to look up and realize that the fields are ready. It's important. I mean, Jesus gave them that, that task of getting food. Jesus has given you whatever he's, whatever you're doing for the Lord, I'm sure he gave it to you, but don't let it overwhelm this. Do you realize that every moment, every day you walk through the mall or you walk, you walk through here or you drive to work, you're driving through harvest fields. And we're waiting for something to happen. And we're waiting for God to do something when perhaps what he's saying is I've already done it. Seeds have already been planted. Do you know there was, a, there was an old man he might say. There's an old man who was talking to this guy in the food court the other day. At that point, that guy didn't make a decision, but you know what? I've been working on him, and today he's asking some very important questions. And you just step in and enter into another man's labor. Because Jesus says here, the guy who plants and the guy that harvests, they get to rejoice together. We're not going to get extra points for being the harvester or the planter. We get to rejoice together. But what he says is there's already people right now that are receiving wages and bearing, reaping fruit for eternal life. Have you ever considered that there are wages to be had here? And he's not talking about a piece of paper that's got a person's head on it. He's talking about the, the things that God has, the rewards of heaven. He says there are wages people are earning. They're rejoicing. They already got fruit. They're getting joy out of it. If you've ever wondered why your Christian life is so lifeless, let me give you, I don't know all the solutions to all your problems. I don't know everything you're going through, but I know one thing that would fix a lot of it. One thing that would revitalize you. One thing that would breathe a breath of fresh air into your Christian walk, and that is tell somebody about Jesus and watch them receive it. (laughs) You know what I'm talking about, right? That experience of sharing the gospel and, and, and watching a dead person come to life is one of the most exciting things in the world. Come on, come on. And then they, they become sometimes annoying, sometimes 
cheerful, but they always keep you fresh, these new believers. They keep you excited. Because in them, you're seeing somebody who is dead, but now lives. That's our food. That's what brings us joy. It brings us life is to accomplish his work. And guys, I know that those little things are important. God sees every little thing. From the vacuuming of the floors to the taking care of the the babies in nursery today, those are important things and God sees them as valuable. But don't get so focused on your task that you miss the mission. The mission is that the harvest field is out there. I want to ask you something and I want you to ask God something. Have I been so focused on what I've been doing and just maintaining that I forgot to look up every now and then. I forgot to look up. Like a hunter who's so focused on how well his gun's working that he never actually looks up and looks for a deer. So focused on how polished it is. So focused on how nice his orange outfit is. So focused on how immaculate his stand is. That he forgets. Wait a second. Let me look out here for a minute. I've missed the point. I don't want us to miss a point, the point. I know I've been in stages where I felt spiritually drained, and sometimes it's an attack of the enemy, and sometimes it's just the way life's been, and sometimes it's because I lost the thing that gave me joy in the first place. And first and foremost, joy is, is relationship with him, Right? That life, that well. But I'll tell you something else. We need to have your eyes open again. We, have, we need to have our heads lifted up and go, wait a second. We've gotten so good at running a church that we forgot there's a whole city around us. I like this group of believers. We're not it. We're not everything. We're not the center of the universe. There's people dying, and they need life. The Bible says that the reason we get together and we get taught, the reason we get together and we hear prophecy, the reason we get together and are encouraged is to be equipped for the work of ministry. This is a time of equipping. I've said this before, but can you, can you imagine if I put a full fireman's uniform on chance and sent him over to Dairy Queen to have a nice meal? Put all the equipment of a, like a fireman that's going into the fire. Stuck it on him. Said, spend a day in that uniform. You would get so annoyed with that uniform. you get tired of it. It would wear you out unless you're going into a burning building. Then that, that equipment becomes a beautiful thing, doesn't it? I, I genuinely believe there are people being equipped by God, and their equipment is heavy on them because they're not using it. So they're annoyed and they're tired of hearing the same sermon over and over again. Why? Because you're not using what you had. You know, I, uh, you know when you get a, a great meal and you, get, and you just get satisfied, but you sit on the couch and watch TV for the rest of the day, you won't be hungry come supper time because you didn't do anything to burn that off. You didn't do anything to use the energy that was in that food. We get fed at these times. We get fed when we open the word of God. We get fed in our time with the Lord. But if we're just sitting around doing nothing with it, we'll be bloated, 
lazy, fat Christians that just don't have any energy. And I don't want to see that. Let's lift up our eyes. It's all right. You're driving down the road. Just driving down Highway 16, 44th Street, Ray Nelson Drive, the street with a thousand names. You're driving down that street. <laughs> what does it mean to have your eyes open then? I don't mean you have to uh, slam on the brakes in the middle of the, the, the uh, highway, jump out of your car, bang on somebody's window at a red light and get them saved there. That's cool if that happens. I, I don't think that's what I'm talking about. But have you ever looked at some of the things you've looked at all your life, and all of a sudden you see them in a fresh way? I want to challenge you to do something you might not have done in a while. I want to challenge you to ask the Holy Spirit to lift your eyes up so that you can see the field again. And what you'll find are the same places you've passed over and over again, the same people you've talked to over and over again, the same neighbors that you just keep, they keep bugging you about your lawn, and you say, yeah, 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 we'll fix that, we'll do this. When's the last time you saw that as a field that was ready? And let me tell you something else. When you step out in faith and just say, okay, God, I'm ready, you'd be surprised what seeds had already been planted. You'd be surprised when you have a word of knowledge for that person, you say something that reads their mail that they don't even know about. You say, oh, I'm not a prophet. Who said you had to be? You have the Holy Spirit. I want to I just encourage you today. Can we ask the Lord? Here's what we're going to do. We're going to ask the Lord to lift up our eyes again. And that's all we are going to just genuinely seek God at the end of this service. I'm not going to lay hands on you to get it done. But we are going to seek the Lord and ask him the question, can you lift up our eyes so that we can see the field again? I don't want you to ask this if you're not willing to deal with the consequences of that question. Because what will happen when you genuinely ask and God always answers is that you will be bothered by things that didn't bother you before. You'll notice things you haven't noticed before and would rather not notice. If you don't want to be inconvenienced, don't do a thing. But if you want to be used by God and rediscover the joy of your salvation and that life that comes, that food which is doing His will and seeing His mission accomplished, His kingdom come, then I want you to join me in it. Let's stand up this morning.